Amen. Everything's turning up roses. Nature's doing her thing. God's thing. Hallelujah. The world may be falling apart, but in here, we can worship the Lord in peace and safety. And God is good to us. Hallelujah. Praise the name of Jesus. I want to direct your attention to the book of Joshua. While you're turning there, let me again say welcome to our visitors, returning visitors. Great to have you here today, Free Spirit Fellowship. God bless you. Hallelujah. Joshua, the fourth chapter. And we'll take up reading at verse number five. Joshua 4 and 5. Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan. Take up every man of you as stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? You will answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Can you say praise the Lord? That's the word of the Lord this morning. Hallelujah. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray right now that you would bless, anoint the word. God, I pray, and anoint our ears to hear and receive. I pray, God, for the world at large, that as this message goes out over the internet, God, that someone may be able to hear and be saved, oh Lord God, we pray, and ask it in Jesus' precious name, we pray. Shake hands, greet some folks, welcome them to the house of God as you're being seated. Praise the Lord. Well, I have the floor early today, but that doesn't mean we'll get out any earlier. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, my point of departure for my thought this morning is in our text of Scripture in verse number 6, where it says that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, I'm going to talk about four questions, or three questions and maybe an answer, and uh, there may be some other peripherals that will spin off of that. I want to talk about this this morning. Why, how, or what, how, why, and because. Now, children ask the strangest uh, questions, and, and uh, we say, they say the funniest things. Sunday school teacher was, began her lesson one morning with a question. She said, Boys and girls, what do we know about God? A hand shot up in the air. He's an artist, said one little five-year-old boy. Really? Well, how do you know, the teacher asked. You know, our father who does art in heaven. <laughs> Another teacher asked her Sunday school class why it was necessary to be quiet in church. And one little bright girl replied, she said, because people are sleeping. <laughs> Poke your neighbor, make sure they're awake. All right. 
kind of reminds me of the wise guy that once said, what did Noah tell his two sons about going fishing off the ark? I love to fish. Let's take my grandkids fishing. What did Noah tell his two sons about going fishing off the ark? He said, go easy, boys. I only have two worms. Life is full of the funniest, strangest questions sometimes. Questions are not a bad thing. Annoying, maybe sometimes, but not a bad thing. I'm getting a reminder, a replay of what it was like. We've, this past week, we've had our, two of our grandchildren overnight, and my grand, oldest granddaughter, Guinevere, is six, going on seven, and she's still in that age of questions, and... <clears throat> not being used to her and all of her questions, it just kind of came as a sudden surprise that you could never just say anything and assume that that, that took care of it, you know. It was always whatever was said led to another question and the answer led to another question and to another question and to another question. And we laughed about that with her mom yesterday and her mom... <laughs> Just says, just says she deals with it by saying, uh-huh, Gwenny, uh-huh, uh-huh, Gwenny, uh-huh. And, and, and Gwenny, Gwenny being the perceptive, uh, on-target person, young person, very observant, that she is, she said, Mom, you're not listening to me. <laughs> and so, you know, with raising questions, we can, uh, raising children, we can know what it is like sometimes to have that age of questions. You know, somewhere around four years of age it begins, and it's still running strong, eight, nine years uh, of age, it'll still be going. Well, and, and that's as it should be because th those are the uh, formative years of the child's brain. It, it, is, it is forming the most rapidly. The brain is growing the most rapidly during that time period. And so learning uh, is, is natural for that, for that age. And so we learn by asking questions. Everyone who's raised children knows that there's that age when they begin asking questions, questions, questions. And so here's a cycle. Curiosity leads to questions, questions to investigations, investigations to discovery, discovery to knowledge, knowledge to teaching, teaching to learning, and learning back to answering questions. That's the cycle of life. And so we're going to talk about four questions this morning. What, how, why, and because. So the first question is what? So what are we talking about? What are we talking about? We're talking about everything. The grand theory of everything that is. The whole bit about what is what exists, what is real, what is not, what is life, what is life, what is the purpose of life, what is creation, what, what, is all, what are all these things? Hebrews 11 and 3 says that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Scientific? Yes. That's very advanced science for a book as old as this is, nearly 2,000 years ago, that was written. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It took humanity 
millennium of years to begin to discover only in this last century that little tiny invisible particles called atoms create the building blocks of nature. And, the, and, and then, then they discovered that wasn't the be-all and the end-all of science, that atoms even are made up of tiny particles, subatomic particles. And then you get into bosons and quarks and all these kind of weird things that uh, you know supposed to make up atoms. But what makes those little things? What creates those little things? What created light? How did, how did we get light? Where do we get uh, the light energy from? Well, if the, you know, the scientific theory of the Big Bang is true, everything came from nothing, an explosion of sound. It was originally sound that was so loud that it, it was so hot because it was so loud that it became light. Isn't that amazing? We understand by faith that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And when a word is spoken, acoustic sound waves are generated. And if you don't have eardrums, you won't hear them because you don't have the means to hear them. But what an eardrum does is vibrate at the convulsion of a sound wave. And the bones in your ears, you know, connect up to the nerves system in your brain and send those little telegraphic vibrating signals to your brain and your brain computes and analyzes it and figures it out. It's an amazing thing about how God created. So this is what we're talking about, the amazing function of life and how God put it together, how he created it. So yes, that's scientific. Romans 1 and 20 says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So God took nothing and he made everything that exists. And all of it argues for intelligent design in creation. It all argues for purpose and for meaning. So when we speak about the what, we have to identify uh, what it is that we're talking about, the amazing creative force of energy and life that we are surrounded with. There's really nowhere you can look and not see it. If you were to collect a sample from your carpet at home and put it under a microscope and put the sufficient power under there, you would find that your crop carpet is crawling with life. Oh, Lord, don't tell me that. I'm, a, I'm OC, you know. <laughs> Don't tell me that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's life in everything. You could take a drop of water, amen, rainwater, pond water. You take a drop of water, put it under a microscope, you're going to find some life. You're going to find life in everything. Just take a little taste from the side of your mouth, a little saliva, a little spit. You won't believe how many bugs are in your, in one drop of saliva in your mouth. It's crawling with life. Amen. Those bugs are crawling around in your mouth. They're crawling around in your digestive system. They're everywhere. You are invaded. Life is full of life. And the bugs have got bugs. So whether it's big or small, it's an amazing blueprint of dynamic life and intelligent design. A single cell, a single living cell, is like a city unto itself. It has 
uh, it has a, a, a city hall, a town hall, where the administration of the cell is carried on. It has policemen uh, that police things and, or, and restrict certain things that should not be allowed in that cell. It has a sewer system. Um, you know, it's got all kinds of, it's got a powerhouse and an energy uh, place where it, it, it makes energy. It's got a factory, a food factory uh, that, that takes care of all of that. And so it's just an amazing thing. We're talking about the what? The grand theory of everything. And what is really, really, really amazing about it, and I don't think there's a computer model or a computer system or a program that's ever been built big enough to compute the statistical odds of all of this having just happened by spontaneous generation. It's just too big to believe that it could happen. So that way. So when we talk about the what, it now brings us to the next question, which would be the how. So, you know, uh, the uh, creation account is given to us in, in Genesis and and it's remarkably scientific in its agreement, more so than any other ancient account or mythological version of creation that has ever uh, been present in the world. The Bible's account of creation remarkably co co parallels, parallels what science today tells us how God created everything. What was, for instance, what was the first thing the Bible tells us God created? Created heaven and earth. But the very first thing he said was, let there be light. Wow. Now that's just an amazing parallel to scientific fact. Because before there could be a hydrogen atom, which is the most simple form of atomic energy. Before there could be ever a hydrogen atom, there had to be light first. So God started everything just the way science tells us it began, with light. And then all of those other things come out of that. Now we have an earth, a giant mud ball collected in the sky, and it gets an atmosphere. Let the firmament be divided from the firmament. Anybody else might have started any other way, but God, who is the ultimate scientist and physicist and genius of all, who put all this together and designed it all, knew that in order to have life on a ball of rock in space, it needed to have an envelope, an atmosphere, which would filter out the harmful cosmic radiation and other rays and give <coughs> a gas envelope for the exchange of gases uh, that could make life happen. So he divided the firmament from the firmament and the seas began to give forth a canopy of air called the atmosphere and you are breathing it in. It's almost like a living thing. Well, let's not even talk about all the little life forms that are floating around in the dust and all that that we're breathing in. But <clears throat> so... A, this is all very scientific and very amazing. You can follow it all the way down through. What was the last thing God, God made? We know what the first thing was. It was light. What was the last thing he made? You're right, woman. <laughs> I knew we'd have a feminist in the group. 
<laughs> now, mankind, he made, uh, technically he didn't make woman last, but he called them Adam. So, so uh, humanity was made, and of course that coincides as well with what science tells us, that hum humanity is the last thing that we really see evidence of coming forth upon the earth. We don't believe in evolution, of course, but, you know, it is still an amazing parallel that man comes last. Brother Steve Waldron, in a recent Perspective article, writes uh, this. He said, the world's foremost atheist, Anthony Flew, when confronted with the evidence, finally said that there had to be a God. And he goes on to say that 40% of all philosophy professors in the United States now believe in God. 40% of philosophy professors believe in God. The number was 1% in the 1960s. That's an amazing statistical change from 1% in the 1960s to 40% today. Why the upward surge? Because the more we learn about science, and the more we learn about life, and the more we study how things came to be, the evidence is compellingly overwhelming that there has to be a designer. It had to be done intelligently. It doesn't make sense any other way. He goes on to make a powerful case for the fall of modern culture into a society based on, Darwinian, on, on the Darwinian doctrine which ultimately has led us to question authority and to accept no standards or moral absolutes. If Darwin's theories were right and there was no God and life just formulated, just came and one species evolved out of another and all of this is some great cosmic joke or not, uh, not even a divine accident but just a cosmic accident, then if all that is true, then, uh, then the next question of why becomes meaningless. If there is no God, then there are no moral absolutes. We are not humans, but animals. If we choose to govern ourselves, what causes us to be obligated to that government? Why not be a pack of wolves and be governed by the alpha male until he gets too old and a youngster comes along and challenges him and drives him out of the pack. Why not be governed by an alpha male? If all we are really is animals, then our laws are nothing more than the, the epitome of the alpha male syndrome, which has the power to enforce upon us what we don't want to have enforced upon us and to force us to be governed by the will of something else bigger than us, but we're, we're really animals, so it shouldn't make any difference. We ought to be able to do anything we can think of, anything we can dream of, anything that pleases us. And when we began to see ourselves, when hum humans began to see themselves as a creature, and we are creatures of God, but when we began to see ourselves as a creature akin to all other creatures, just an elevated life form, if you want to think of it as that, if you're arrogant enough uh, 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 of a Darwinian to think that your life form is superior to every other life form, then go ahead and do that uh, and, and, and make the argument and make the case that you ought to be able to do anything you want to. When they do that, they start euthanizing people. 
They start, they start killing people off on the basis of race. They start, they start hurting and destroying people because they have the power to do it. We had an interesting conversation with my grandkids the other day when, you know, all this trouble that's in the world this week, you know, the, the shooting down of planes in the Ukraine and uh, the invasion of, of Gaza by Israel generated a lot of questions in my grandkids' mind, and that, that granddaughter of mine that's questioning everything, wants to know why there's war. Why do people, she said, why can't they just sit down and talk about it? Genius, I mean, that's out of the mouth of babes, right? You know, that's just genius. I mean, who would have ever, which one of us, who, which president or parliamentarian or senator or whatever thought of that? You know, why can't we just sit down and talk about it and work it all out? Oh, that it could be that easy. I had explained to her, I said, honey, have you ever had a, 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 somebody in school that was a bully that for no reason just treated you mean? took your things and maybe hit you and was mean to you and you didn't do anything to them and they just were picking on you, picking on you, picking on you. Have you ever had anybody like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, that's what starts wars. And, they, and, and, and it's only a war when somebody who's being bullied and robbed and hurt decides they're not going to take it anymore. And they stand up for themselves and they confront the bully that's when there's a war. That's, that's when it happens. And that's when it becomes, uh, you know, necessary, if you want to argue it's necessary. So if you don't like war anymore, just why don't you turn in all of your weapons, arms, resign yourself from politics, and convert to Islam, because that is the ultimate destiny of the world based on statistical numbers. That is the future of the Western society based on the numbers, just go ahead and convert to Islam, and uh, they'll stop picking on you. And then, you, you, you know, we won't have war anymore. And that's what you want. So that's kind of reason why we have these kind of terrible things. So the whole point of the why question is to discover what, if anything, there is to life. And if we believe in God, and if we believe in his word, then, then we have the answer to every why. If God is real, if he created everything, if he's doing everything, then we have the answer to every why. It's in God. It's in God. It's in his purpose, the answer. If God didn't, if he doesn't exist, if not, what then? Where can you find an answer if nothing has meaning? If it doesn't mean anything then there is no answer. And it's every man to himself, every woman to himself. Because you don't have to count to anything. Nothing matters. You don't have to answer to anything. So the why and the how. <clears throat> There's an interesting piece in the uh, astronomy magazine this past month. It's entitled Astronomy and God by Bob Bergman, Berman, Bob Berman. He says, hey, whoa. That's a no-no. We don't bring religion into these pages. This is a science magazine. And introducing spirituality is as wise as inviting the three stooges into a crystal glassware shop. Yet, for some crazy reason, religion creeps into some popular science media. Each episode of the new Cosmos TV series that ran on Fox this past spring 
uh, featured religious put-downs. For example, an animation during the first episode, poor Giordano Bruno burned at the stake in the year 1600 for believing in possible life among the stars, is approvingly shown turning his head disgustingly away from a crucifix. Not surprisingly, religious groups have been howling, and it's not lost on them that the original 1980 Cosmos was written and hosted by Carl Sagan, a self-proclaimed agnostic. This new incarnation produced by his widow continues the series' conviction that a belief in God is a superstition anathema to science. The second episode focused exclusively on evolution, deliberately zoomed into the architecture of the eye, a battleground area for intelligent design folks who say that evolution cannot explain the eye's initial formation given its interdependent structures. In reality, some astrophysicists are agnostics or atheists, while others are religious. Today's topic is whether either viewpoint belongs in the science program or publication. In fact, the fact is 74% of Americans believe in God, and very few would abandon their faith just because host Neil deGrasse Tyson keeps suggesting that the cosmos is all one big accident. Indeed, the majority of the world regards the universe as suffused with an overwhelming intelligence. He goes on to say, some believe the universe is fundamentally dumb and its machinations random. Others are uh, are an underlying intelligence in nature, nature, but don't try to explain it. Still others advocate a separate creator that stands apart from the universe. Atheists cannot prove God's non-existence, nor can religious folks prove the opposite. It's a matter of perception or faith. Like love, art, or other imponderable, spirituality lies outside of math, physics, and statistical analysis. Was the Big Bang the birth of the universe, as many often claim? Certainly not. It's merely the earliest event of which we have knowledge. Better would be calling it the birth of the observable universe, while conceding that no one knows if the underlying cosmos had any sort of beginning. Another never-discussed realm is that of the unknowable, just as probably no one will ever know if cats dream in color, we can likely never learn what preceded the Big Bang, the nature of other universes in a supposed multiverse model, or what dwells over the horizon beyond which our telescopes can observe. Very interesting questions and propositions for a scientific journal like astronomy. But yet it is, in reality, an honest statement an honest statement from someone attempting to be unbigoted in their thinking and in their mind. You can close your mind and never learn another thing again, but it is not to anyone's benefit not to know. When God made Adam, he put within humanity a great desire to know things. Curiosity didn't just kill the cat. It got Eve in a world of trouble and us along with it. And you will forever be curious. That little child in you that was once so very curious hasn't stopped being curious. In fact, one of the big problems that we have as humans is where our curiosity often leads us. And until we learn that the stove is hot and will burn us when we touch it, we will never know that sin will hurt us until we've tried it. 
Our curiosity takes us there. Then we come to Jesus for bandages because he is the answer to every why. He is also the reason for how it got done. Hallelujah. Praise God. Steve Waldron further illustrates, he said, Darwin knew that the eye baffled him. It, didn't, it shouldn't exist. The eye shouldn't exist in evolutionary theory. As a matter of fact, almost no parts of complex creatures should exist according to evolution. Why? If evolution says that beneficial mutations were passed on from generation to generation, gradually becoming better and more refined, then the eye, the eye is a closed system as are most systems of complex organisms. A blob of eye tissue would serve no purpose before it became a fully functioning eye. And therefore, according to evolution, which disposes of things that are not beneficial, it would have not been passed down, uh, would have been eradicated rather than being passed down because an, a partial eye is harmful to a creature. It's not helpful in any way. It would be a drag. The same is true for every other system in our body. If it didn't serve a function and the only function of evolution is to get rid of things that aren't functioning, then it should stand to reason and it certainly would answer to a law of physics, a law of entropy, which says that everything will decay and fall apart, and that is the future of all things, then certainly it should have decayed and fallen apart. August Wiseman disproved the inheritance of acquired characteristics. We know, and that was one of the foundations of Darwin's theory, that once you acquired the characteristic, you could pass it on down to, to generations after you. But we now know that this is false on another level of science because of DNA. <clears throat> An amputee, for instance, does not pass on to his children uh, an arm that is cut off just because he had his arm amputated. Rats who have their tails cut off for a thousand generations because of the outward removal of the tail has no effect on their DNA. Every new generation of rat that was born to tailless parents will have a tail. And every generation of humans Going back to Adam and Eve, who had none, have belly buttons. It gets passed on, right? The design inference is obvious to anyone who takes the time to objectively take a look at the matter. Francis Collins began as an atheist when heading the Human Genome Project. This was an ambitious program to map all of the 3.1 billion strands of human DNA. He ended the question, he ended the quest as a Christian. He said that if the computer he was using for simulation was obviously designed, the far more complex DNA structure he was observing had to also be designed. Even the atheist Richard Dawkins now agrees that design has to be used in creation, but he holds, but he looks for the design to have come from aliens and not God. Uh, anything but God. <laughs> you know. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us what happens to people who begin to see themselves as creatures akin to other creatures, as birds and animals, four-footed beasts. They refuse and reject to keep God in their thinking, in their mind. They do not answer to God. They will not answer to God. And the end result is that they began to worship creatures, four-footed beasts, and suns and moons and stars and things that are created. They see themselves as creatures and no better than other creatures. So they save whales and trees, but kill babies. They see themselves as creatures, no better than anyone else or anything else. So the very... So uh, <clears throat> this is a very important difference. There's a very important difference between these two questions of how and why. Very important difference. Science attempts to answer the how, but religion tries to figure out why. And this is very important because science is not interested in why, only in how. And religion, theology, is more interested in why than how. It's not that we're not interested in how, but we're more interested in why. Because if how was because God made everything and that he has a plan and a divine purpose, then why is more important than how. Let's give God a hand praise right now and wake up the sleeping people. Wake up all the sleeping people. All right, so what's next? What's next is because. There's that because question or because answer. Have you ever told that questioning child in, in perhaps exasperation after having failed to answer all of their questions? Have you ever told them because I said so? <laughs> Four famous words every frustrated parent knows very well. And that's the end of the discussion. The science stops here. The questions stop here. All the rest of the answers that you need to know about this question is because I said so. That's it. Does that hold very long? Now, it doesn't hold adults' curiosity very long either, does it? So, you know, it's only a temporary measure. And you're using your authority. You haven't driven the question away because you haven't answered it. The question can only go away when it gets satisfied with a satisfactory answer that makes sense. So we'll always be questioning. Do you think God sometimes gets frustrated and just points his finger down at you and me and says, because I said so, T.A. Lefebvre, this is the way it is, because I said so. <laughs> I think maybe sometimes we drive him to it. And uh, we don't get the answers we always want. We don't get the answers we always think we're going to get. God doesn't always tell us yes or no. Sometimes it's maybe because I said so. That's no different than what we see in the testimony of the Scripture. Every Bible character, every Bible story is riddled with the same kinds of things. The yeses, the noes, and the because I said so answers from God. And they all help us in our growing faith in, in God. Amen. In understanding how God works. So we need to understand because is an answer. And the Bible contains the history of everything. It's the history of everything that's important. 
Even the history of the rapidly approaching future of the world is in the Bible. The history of the future is in the Bible. The history of the past is in the Bible. Everything you need to know about life, about what, how, and why is in the Bible. But there is one other great answer that is in the Bible, and it is the because answer. It is the because answer. Jesus is God's because. He came because of our sin. He came because God so loved the world. He came because he was foreordained from the beginning of creation to be the because of God. Hallelujah. And so everything that I need to have a final answer to, amen, I can look to Jesus and understand because of you, Jesus. Because of you, I can stand safe. Because of you, I can obtain mercy. Because of you, I can find grace and favor in the presence of God. Because of you, I can be free from sin. Because of you, I don't have to suffer in bondage. Because of your stripes, I can be healed. Because of you, I can be a soul liberated from prison. I can be set free. Because of you, the world can be a better place. Because of you. Oh, let's give God a hand praise. <laughs> hallelujah, hallelujah. So this leads us to two final questions, which would be if and what then? If and what then? If all of this is not so, what then? What is the answer? If what, the, if what I'm saying about God in the Bible is not true, we have no explanation for life. We only have the how. We, don't have, we only have the what and the how, but we don't have the why. Can't figure out the why. If we don't know why, what then? What is the answer? There is no answer. There's no answer. There's no answer. Life isn't a mystery. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's whatever you imagine it to be. It's whatever you want it to be. You can transgender yourself because there is no why. Because we believe Darwin about evolution, we now have to accept marriage between two same-sex couples, which is the ultimate slap in the face to evolution. It is the ultimate evolutionary dead end to a people who think that they're still evolving to a higher state of mind and thinking that permits them to live together in this manner. But it is a lifestyle devoid of generation and without return. So now we have a culture and we have a system imposing this worldview upon us and we'll do it legally and it will become the ultimate challenge of the church in this generation how we're going to accept and adapt and live with this and whether we're going to get along with it or not. I just read an article about the two popes. Somebody wrote a book that said there's a pope in the attic. And for the first time in about 600 years of human history, we have two living popes in the Catholic Church. They both live in the Vatican. One lives in the attic, and the other is controlling everything. And the guy that's living in the attic was for biblical marriage. But the guy that's now wearing the papal crown says, who am I to judge? And he is undoing everything that the guy before him was trying to do to tighten what the church believed. This new guy is throwing the 
He's throwing everything aside. Well, that's just as it should be if the coming of the Lord is to be soon and there is to be a false prophet who will be the messenger of an antichrist. It's as it should be if there will be a one-world system of religion that will require an ecumenical consolidation of religious thought that bring all religions together as if each one of them was a single spoke in a giant wheel that all led to the same hub of heaven or eternity and it didn't make any difference what spoke you were on or what road you traveled you'll ultimately get there it should make no difference if that is where we're headed and I think it is where we're headed but if I believe that this book is true then I know the what I know the how, I know the why, and I have the because. So, I know where to go for if and what then. Can you say praise the Lord? Hallelujah. That thinking has become so popular that there are parents today that are raising their children as gender-optional children. Absolutely raising their children as general, gender optional. You can decide what you are when you grow up. Insanity is another name for humanity. <laughs> if not true, then what happens next? If it's not true, what happens next in the Ukraine? Or Russia. If none of this is true, what happens next in Gaza and in Israel? Is it important? Is it? If this is not true, is what's happening in the world important? Is it meaningful? Does it have an answer? Is there a solution? Can we ever say because and stop it all? If this is not true. This is not true, then the question is asked, is it important that ISIS is driving Christians out of Mosul, Iraq, this weekend? Which is the site of the prophet Jonah's tomb, which since they've captured the city, they have desecrated because he was a Jewish prophet in their land. Is it important that we spilled blood and treasure to liberate Iraq from political tyranny, to turn it over to religious tyranny. There were one million Christians living in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Now there's less than half that number. Mosul has had a Christian presence for 1,700 years. That's 200 years before the birth of the Prophet Muhammad, 200 years before the foundation of Islam. Christians have been living there and paying respect to the tomb of the prophet Jonah. This weekend, ISIS gave them three options, but really only two were operational. They had to convert or they had to pay the, the fine, which in the Shia law says that every Jew or Christian living in Islam must either convert or pay a fine or they have to leave or be killed. Today, Mosul, which under Saddam Hussein had 60,000 Christians living there, 
And since the turnover of power following the Iraq war had 35,000 Christians living there, this weekend has zero Christians living there. If the Bible is not true and God does not exist, is any of this important? Does any of this matter? It really doesn't matter. Humans can do whatever they want to do, whatever they're big enough and bad enough and strong enough to do. But if God is real, if he does exist, the world will not ultimately be dominated by Islamic law, but it will be ruled from Jerusalem, from the revived throne of David, by Jesus himself for a thousand years, and you and I will be the enforcers of the law. If this is true, that is the real future of what is going to happen. It won't be Islam, although statistically, here's the problem, statistically. New research shows that the global numbers of Christians has remained stagnant while Islam has skyrocketed to a worldwide religion. Reports Christianity today, that Christianity has remained about the same, but Islam has doubled in members. Christians made up 34.5% of the world's population in 1900, but fell to 32.9% in 2010. Muslims made up 12.3% of the world's population in 1900, but rose to 22.5 million in 2010. So there is a rapid Islamization of the world taking place. They don't abort. They can marry four wives and have lots of kids. And they force people to convert. And they will put you to death if you try to convert one of them to Christianity. You can die and the person you converted would die. They force it on the world. And that is likely to be the future unless Christians do something about it. And you can multiply to yourself children and populate the world and the church that way. That's been the Catholic strategy for nearly 2,000 years. Or we can soul win. We can be soul winners and get the gospel out there like Jesus said we ought to. Evangelize the whole world beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. What are we doing to help people to become converted? If we don't convert people, the numbers are against us. You can drive all through the northeast, up and down the highways, into the cities and villages, and you will find abandoned church after closed-down church that has been closed for years and years and years and years. There's nothing living in the belfry but bats and rats in the basement. It's been a long time since anyone went there to worship God. Hallelujah. And it can happen to a Pentecostal church, to an apostolic church, just as easily as it can happen to anyone else unless we do something about the numbers. The numbers don't lie. The old generation passes away. Something has to come along and replace them or the church becomes like anything else. Hallelujah. I'm going to close. We can stand together. 
tonight, today. Steve Waldron concludes like this. He says, but truth is always truth. It is always right. It is always liberating. And it is the hope for this world. If God is right in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, then he's right at Calvary. He's right about the upper room on the day of Pentecost. He's right about judgment to come and to heaven to gain and to hell to shun. The evidence shows overwhelmingly God is true. God is true. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands. Thank God today for this truth. It may be hidden, but it's not hidden from us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, we pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would touch and move, God upon this church, upon the church of Jesus Christ, around the world, oh Lord. Right now, God, I know that there are hundreds of people from Iraq and Iran that are being baptized in Jesus' name clandestinely and returning to their countries, returning to their cities. I pray for Christians everywhere right now today who are suffering, who are being persecuted, oh God, who are being driven out, who are being forced at the point of death to convert to something they cannot believe in. Lord Jesus, we pray it does not happen here. It does not come to this shore. But Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that the church will have the will, Lord God, to rise up and to have an explosion of evangelistic fervor and zeal to be soul winners and to win people to Jesus Christ. We do have the answers to the why, the what, the hows, the because, the ifs, and the what then. We have the answers, Lord. We know what it is. It's a sure thing in the Word of God. And we pray right now, today, Lord God, that you would help us go into this 